This is Guns and Butter. And I would simply say the danger of this financial crisis is that the prospect of a banking panic and a dollar panic drive the ruling class into a frenzy, make them go berserk, uh, hysterical in the most extreme form. And this is the sort of ruling class mentality where a flight forward into war seems like, for them, a relaxation of tension. And of course, one other thing is, if you're going to have a depression, they're going to want to have an austerity program. They're going to say, cutting your living standard by two-thirds is not enough. We want to cut it by another 20, 30, 40 percent. And you're now getting to the point where the only way you can do that is under martial law. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Webster Tarpley. Today's show, Beyond Collapse to Disintegration. How to Stop the Depression. Webster Tarpley is an economic historian, author, and lecturer. He is author of Surviving the Cataclysm, A Study of the World Financial Crisis, your guide through the greatest financial crisis in human history. Surviving the Cataclysm was published in 1999 and was followed immediately by the dot-com bubble and then by the housing bubble. We are now at the end of the housing bubble. In 1992, Tarpley co-authored George Bush, The Unauthorized Biography, which still stands as the only comprehensive and critical account of the former president and his family network. Tarpley is also author of 9-11 Synthetic Terror, Made in the USA, and Against Oligarchy. He has just written a new article, Helicopter Ben Unleashes Dollar Hyperinflation. Webster Tarpley, welcome again. Thank you very much. It's good to be here. I noticed in your paper that you write about uh, statistics with regard to freight car loading and truckload volume. What is that? Well, these, these are data series which have almost been forgotten. It, it used to be 20 or 30 years ago you'd hear about freight car loadings in a bulletin of economic news. But as the, the center of attention has moved more and more into this casino economy of, of purely speculative paper derivatives and, and uh, these uh, exotic structured notes, we hear less and less about a real economy because it's also atrophied in the U.S. to being practically uh, invisible. But the American Trucking Association still puts out a, uh, an index month to month and week to week for the loadings of, um, of trucks. And uh, I went and looked at this. Uh, essentially, the starting point was it would appear that a contraction and perhaps even a rather violent contraction in the underlying level of employment and consumption and production uh, has begun in the United States sometime during the first half of 2007 for reasons that we can talk about in a minute. So the question is, how do you find that out? The Bush administration statistics are all cooked. They're all lies, right, massaged uh, beyond the point of, uh, of absurdity. And any statistics that you have that involve dollar amounts are also unreliable because you've got to remember that hyperinflation element that, that skews uh, the dollar. So we have to find physical units somewhere. So we're, t- we're practicing physical economy, and a physical unit would be loading a, a truckload. So 
Here's what we find. Um, at the beginning of 2007, the seasonally adjusted volume for uh, truck loadings was down 5% compared to December of 2006. And this was the largest monthly drop since uh, early in, uh, in the year 2000. Similarly, the Association of American Railroads publishes a data series that used to be called freight car loadings. I guess it's now called rail car loadings. And they did a cumulative study for the first uh, several months of the year. And they found in, uh, in April, for the first 17 weeks of 2007, rail car loadings were down a cumulative 4.2%, and intermodal trailers, that is roll-on, roll-off, right, the tra trailer trucks that can go on a, on a flat car, the intermodal trailers were down by 11.5%. So if we have... To sum it up, freight car loadings down 4.2% and truckload volumes down 5% in the beginning of 2007. These are somewhat fragmentary snapshots, um, but I think they indicate that a contraction is on. Now, also in terms of the contraction, a recent statement from Walmart, uh, they, they put out their sales results and they lamented that the, the sales uh, were, were not what Walmart uh, expected of itself. And then the the head of Walmart then added, it's no secret that people in this country run out of money several days before the end of the month. Uh, a remarkable statement, but I think a true one. Uh, General Motors has just announced that it will not have any more overtime, so they're cutting production at General Motors. And this comes in the middle of a U.S. auto industry that is already severely depressed. Um, Probably looking at total industrial employment in this country, and with people working in factories, we're now well below 10 million, as far as I can see. And that takes us back to levels that have not been seen since uh, sometime in the second half of the 19th century. So it seems to me that there is a contraction of the real economy going on. Now, what might that derive from? I think it's rooted in another thing that I read about in this paper, if I can find it. It is the, the hedge fund orgy of uh, of 2006. Remember, there were about 10,000 hedge funds, and there are about um, $2 trillion in uh, in assets. So they're, they're engaged in what they call private capital. It means buying up companies, taking them private. used to be called leveraged buyouts. It's essentially acts of financial piracy, because as soon as these people take over a company, say Cerberus Hedge Fund takes over Chrysler Corporation, which is what's going on right now, they fire workers, they cut production, they sell off uh, various branches of the company, they want to wreck the pension fund, they want to cut everybody's health care, they want to destroy uh, any other kind of social services, they want to bust the union, among other things, and, and the transaction itself generates huge amounts of debt. So the production is going down and the debt is going up. And that is a long-term or medium-term recipe for a, uh, a total depression. Now, it also has to do with the fact that there is no more productive investment. Right? Productive investment is the thing of the, of the distant, uh, forgotten past. So all money goes into these uh, deals. In the year 2006, there were $4 trillion of mergers and acquisitions of these, $1 trillion were leveraged buyouts. 
And of this, $500 billion came in December of 2006. And that set the stage then for 2007 to be the year that we're seeing, which is the year when the contraction begins and the contraction then kicks over into the, into the financial realm. Well, I remember the leveraged buyout frenzies beginning in the 80s, and I guess they've just proceeded forward with gutting people's pension plans, etc., all of the things that you have enumerated. But how do the leveraged buyouts relate to the mortgage crisis? It's because you've got to ask yourself, why is it that people can't maintain the payments on these subprime mortgages, adjustable rate mortgages, and indeed many other mortgages. What has been the big change in the U.S. economy in the course of the last uh, two years? And I would say you'd have to recognize, first of all, that the automobile industry has been the center of the U.S. productive economy since 1945. Now, this this is obviously not ideal. This is not what we'd want. You wouldn't want to have a whole economy based on, on passenger cars, but that's what we've got. So, we have to see it the way it is. Uh, in the past two years, we've had probably 300,000, well, 300,000 jobs have been lost in autos since Bush has come into office. And I would say in 2005, 2006, we've probably lost 50 or 60,000 of those jobs. So these are auto workers. These are well-paid workers with union pay scales. So we've had a tremendous shrinkage in the automobile industry. And this, of course, is not just Detroit. It's just about everywhere. We've had Chrysler being sold as a piece of old junk from Daimler to the Cerberus hedge fund for $5 billion. The entire worth of Chrysler Motor Company, $5 billion, when the Federal Reserve can inject $40 billion into Wall Street in one day to buy one day of, uh, of relative uh, tranquility. That $40 billion could have been used to essentially modernize and save the entire U.S. automobile industry uh, and, and preserve hundreds of thousands of jobs, but they didn't do that. Uh, instead, what we've had is the shrinkage of the big three, General Motors, Ford, and, and Chrysler, all in very, very deep trouble. And then there's another dimension, which is less known, but there are suppliers the subcontractors, spare parts suppliers, and, and other companies that do business with the big three. And I'm thinking of Delphi, Lear Corporation, Tower, Collins, and Aikman. These have been taken over by LBO predators, by Cerberus, by Wilbur Ross, somebody who's been on CNBC lately. Uh, and these have been cut down brutally, uh, essentially left as gutted shells, of what they were or or wiped out uh, completely. So that essentially explains 300,000 jobs in auto gone under the reign of Bush. And I think that will count as one of the biggest of his crimes. Now, what happens to the whole U.S. economy when you take uh, the central branch of industry and you gut it? Well, that is going to reduce national income, reduce buying power. It's going to reduce the ability of the American people to pay uh, inflated interest rates on these adjustable rate mortgages, subprime mortgages, and so on down the line. And, and then remember also that the price of these things is simply going into the ionosphere. Right? As all the capital rushes into a housing bubble of pure speculation, this takes it out of people's ability 
to pay for it. So again, the financial system is jacking the prices up into the ionosphere at the same time that the levels of production are going to the floor. So that fundamental dualism creates the conditions for, for a panic crash, which is what we, what we have now. And maybe to put this part in a little bit of perspective, uh, we've talked about panic runs, and it's not just me talking about panic runs on, uh, on banks and on the dollar. In this uh, op-ed by William Gross of PIMCO, he says that there is a danger of a run on the dollar if U.S. interest rates go down. And he also says that there are runs from... Uh, financial institutions, uh, hedge funds, and there's a lot of people that are trying to get out of these hedge funds. Well, uh, the most dramatic is a banking panic. And, and I mentioned in 1932-1933, just about every bank in the United States uh, shut down. Uh, on the 16th and 17th of August, there were panic runs all over California for the Countrywide Bank. Now, Countrywide is... Countrywide is on your side, right? That's your biggest single mortgage lender. And in California, they have a savings bank, savings and loan, I guess it is. In 20 or 25 locations, they have bank branches. And on Thursday, the 16th of August, a panic run emerged on Countrywide Bank. Now, most people have never seen this. If you've seen It's a Wonderful Life with Jimmy Stewart, right? You see the panic run on the local savings and loan. Well, that happened in many towns in California uh, as a result of the fact that people said, wait a minute, if Countrywide is going to go bankrupt, then Countrywide Bank may go bankrupt too. Let's get our money out. This is one of the things that caused Helicopter Ben to cut the Federal Reserve discount rate by one-half of 1% the next day to try to reassure people that Countrywide Bank would not be going under. So you have to remember, in, in terms of social dislocation, a banking panic is the biggest social crisis, social dislocation, short of thermonuclear war, because it literally affects everybody. In other words, if you don't have a banking system, you don't have supermarkets, you don't have department stores, you don't have clothing or shoes, uh, you can't make payments. Uh, a banking system is absolutely essential. And if you have a panic run on banks that shuts down the banks, then the wheels of an economy tend to grind to a halt, as they did in the U.S. in that horrible Herbert Hoover winter of 1932 to 1933, before the Roosevelt Bank holiday then uh, at least um, dealt with, the, with this problem, uh, at least in the, in the short run. So we have come very close to, a, to a, a, really a, a banking panic on a larger scale, and there's a continuous panic going on in the, in the hedge funds, and in some of these capital markets. So this is a very, very serious situation. I'm speaking with author and economic historian Webster Tarpley. Today's show, Beyond Collapse to Disintegration, How to Stop the Depression. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Well, now, how does that relate to hyperinflation? You see hyperinflation uh, coming uh, in the future. Yes, I guess the question is now a, a problem of terminology um, in the following sense. When I say hyperinflation, I'm thinking of the fact, first of all, that the system is being flooded with money. Uh, and that is one way to create hyperinflation. Remember, 
inflation is not just a monetary phenomenon. That's the famous quote from uh, from Friedman, I guess, and, and the monetarists, right? That inflation is caused by money. No, inflation, as we knew in the 1950s, inflation is too much money chasing too few goods. There has to be something that you buy in the equation. This is one of the points where monetarism takes leave of, of the real uh, world. So if you pump huge amounts of money into a system, like the U.S. banking system, then you may be on the verge of hyperinflation. That's one factor. And then the other factor is, since everything is imported, if the dollar tanks and the dollar is very weak and getting weaker, again, losing 1.25 pennies to a euro in one day, very dramatic fall, uh, that's another way that hyperinflation can arrive. Now, let's just take a couple of examples. 1923 German hyperinflation. It goes from four marks to a dollar pre-war, pre-1914, to four trillion marks to a dollar, and really more. It gets up to almost 11 to 12 trillion marks per dollar in terms of street prices uh, in November of 1923. A kilo of rye bread goes from 29 centimes, 29 pennies, a fraction of a mark, to 428 billion marks. One egg goes from 8 pennies to 80 billion marks. A kilo of butter from 2.7 marks to 6 trillion marks. Kilo of beef from 1.75 marks to 5.6 billion marks. Now that's uh, hyperinflation, and uh, that may be closer than, uh, than it seems right now. The problem that you have is a question of terminology. In other words, deflation, there are forces at work for deflation. And when Bush comes out and says, no bailouts, uh, what he's basically saying is what Andrew Mellon said in the 1920s, liquidate stocks, liquidate bonds, liquidate labor, liquidate real estate, let everything go bankrupt. It's what, what the Schumpeter School of Economics means when they say creative destruction. It's only if you're on the on the receiving end of the creative destruction that you don't think it's so creative. Um, we have a guy at the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis by the name of William Poole who says only a catastrophe, only a calamity could justify lowering the interest rate. Well, these people are essentially supporting an immediate deflationary crash. In other words, that everything goes bankrupt and everything shuts down. I've tried to explain before that I think Helicopter Ben is leaning in the other direction. And indeed, the whole U.S. and world systems lean in the other direction. That since uh, Greenspan, in the crash of 1987, put out his famous communique that the Federal Reserve stands ready as the lender of last resort to provide liquidity to keep the system going, it's clear that when confronted with chain reaction bankruptcies in the hedge funds and the banking system, that the Federal Reserve is going to flood the system with money. You're going to have dollar bills sloshing in the gutters of Wall Street because money is so easy to get at such low interest rates. And whether this is done publicly or you know, under the table, it doesn't matter so much. So I can't, I can't guarantee hyperinflation because there are these people like Bush and William Poole running around, but I think hyperinflation is, is the very, very likely result. But you've got to remember that there is no mutually exclusive um, 
definition here. In other words, when we say deflation and hyperinflation, what we're using is categories that come out of the period between 1918 and, and 1939. And these may not be exactly uh, applicable. Uh, and, and here's what I mean. Um, in the Carter era, they found a new phenomenon which had not, had not uh, emerged, which was, uh, they had to call it stagflation. And stagflation meant that there was a very high unemployment rate and a very high inflation rate at the same time. And those had not been combined in that way, at least in, in U.S. history. And you remember under Carter, they actually developed something called the Misery Index. And the Misery Index was, was determined by adding the unemployment rate and the inflation rate. Now, I think what we face today is a combination of hyperinflation and deflation. And I think this is the way the system has been going. In the 1990s, as I wrote in this book, Surviving the Cataclysm, 1999, if you look at uh, the struggling working families of the United States, what you're going to see is wage deflation, in other words, a low-wage economy, combined with price inflation in such areas as medical insurance, college tuition, home mortgage uh, in, uh, interest rates, and so forth, and high levels of real unemployment and underemployment. So I think what we're faced with is a somewhat new situation. The, the section that I, I have in my book about this asks, will it be hyperdeflation or hyperinflation? Answer, it will be the worst of both. In other words, it's, it, one way to say it is you've seen Bush in Iraq, you've seen Bush with Katrina. Now imagine Bush in a world financial panic which is really more complex and, and, and more of a challenge uh, from many points of view than either one of the, of the others, uh, that it's likely to be, to be worse. And therefore, we probably need a new term, and I haven't quite determined what the new term might be, but something like hyper-deflation or hyper, how about hyper-depression? In other words, a world economic depression accompanied by hyperinflation, a hyper-depression. Maybe that's adequate. Uh, but I think we're, we're going to see things that have not, not been seen uh, before. And in particular, if we have a derivatives bailout, we will see the greatest depreciation of uh, currency in the history of economics. And it is important to remember that the Roman Empire eventually succumbed to a hyperinflation. In other words, it's a long-term process of hyperinflation that we've had uh, in the United States. And this is essentially what, what happened in the, uh, in the Roman Empire 200 A.D., 300 A.D., 400 A.D. There was a very long process of, of hyperinflation and depreciation of the, of the currency, which is, a, it is something that accompanies the fall of, of empires. So I'm not saying that that's um, you know, destiny or fate, because you could stop it. But if, if nothing changes and if, if monetarist outlooks and supply-side outlooks are allowed to go on, we will have hyperinflation, I think. Now, we've discussed the demise of the dollar, uh, coming economic depression, and the plans to bail out the rich and the, uh, the financial sector, the Wall Street sector. All of these uh, economic crises are going to lead 
and are leading to a political crisis. Now, in your paper, Helicopter Ben Unleashes Dollar Hyperinflation, you talk about the Cheney Doctrine. What is that? Well, the Cheney Doctrine is something that we've known about in public print for two years, and I've really been writing about it since, um, I think, May of 2004 was when I put it out. I called it Rogue Bush Backers Plan Super 9-11, May, around the Memorial Day weekend of 2004. But then in August of 2005, we have Philip Giraldi writing in the American Conservative and saying essentially the the same thing, that Cheney is... uh, planning, uh, preparing to orchestrate, manufacture, execute, carry out a new 9-11, preferably with nuclear weapons, to be used then as a uh, pretext for an attack on Iran, and most likely for martial law here in the United States. Now, we know a couple of articles recently in the McClatchy News Service point to the same thing. McClatchy tells us, first of all, that Cheney continues to demand airstrikes into Iran on the Quds Force, that is the elite units of the Pastoran Revolutionary Guard, the group that the neocons are now called the Iranian SS. Um, and this, of course, these would, this would then open a, a general war because it would, it would lead to a slide uh, towards uh, planetary conflict. Any, any serious attack on Iran would end up killing Russians in the nuclear reactors that they are building, killing Chinese, in the oil fields where they're you know, looking, looking over the uh, oil exports to, uh, to Japan. So this would put us on a short slide uh, towards World War III. Another McClatchy article points out that people in the uniform military are telling the neocons no. They're telling them, if you want to attack Iran, you put on the uniform and you go, you neocons. And that, I think, is a, a positive sign. I would also point to the fact that Putin by restoring these bare bomber strategic patrols that have been seen in the North Atlantic and Guam and other parts of the world, and then announcing that these strategic bomber patrols are a permanent uh, fixture of Russian policy, he has gone, I think, some steps at least towards restoring a regime of deterrence in the world. And, of course, behind the uh, bare bomber, we've got the, uh, the Topol M intercontinental ballistic missile superior to anything in the U.S. arsenal, shortly to be joined by the Bulova uh, submarine-launched ballistic missile, also superior to what the U.S. seems to have at the present time. So a a realm of serious nuclear deterrence. Now, the the U.S. and British are at pains to to try to denigrate the efficacy of the Russian deterrent, but I I would not uh, join in this. Uh, This this is absolutely foolhardy, uh, what they're doing. So that part is done. On the other hand, I've heard it myself from a, a well-placed Democratic Party leader in the House of Representatives that the Democratic Party has officially approved an attack on Iran, that they've sanctioned it, and that there will be no protest. We can imagine Mrs. Clinton, an eager cheerleader for an attack on Iran. We've got Biden, who wants to attack uh, Sudan. We've got Obama, who wants to bomb Pakistan. Uh, Edwards, who says that all options have to remain on the table, uh, and I think it's clear that the Reid-Pelosi leadership uh, would, would oppose no, uh, no real resistance other than a little verbal nonsense to, to an attack on Iran. But I think it's, it's largely the uniformed military in this country, and then this big question mark, what would Russia do that's, that's saving us? Now, the connection, though, is, is the following. 
when you have a panic crisis of the U.S. banking system, and again, when you have panic runs on Countrywide Bank all over California, and when you have an 800% increase in the foreclosure rate in California, California being in many ways the center of this crisis, going back to New Century in, uh, in Irvine, which was one of the biggest mortgage lenders and one of the first uh, to go bankrupt, uh, this is the kind of thing that makes a ruling class go berserk. And I think the U.S.-British ruling elites are going berserk as they see their banking system undermined by bankruptcy and then um, the danger of a dollar panic. In other words, a massive rush for the exits out of the dollar, uh, which is definitely now with, within sight, something, again, that William... Gross of PIMCO writes about in the Washington Post. It's, it's no, no secret. I'm speaking with author and economic historian Webster Tarpley. Today's show, Beyond Collapse to Disintegration, How to Stop the Depression. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. So what I wanted to do was to go back and try to find a way to, to compare this with uh, well, the, the last world war, in effect, right? In other words, it's specifically, it's a meeting uh, attended by by Hitler in uh, August August twenty second of nineteen thirty nine, where Hitler is seeking to mobilize and to and to motivate a group of Nazi bigwigs and government uh, ministers and uh, generals and and other people, and he's trying to essentially convince them that uh, it's time to attack Poland. So this is now the Führerkonferenz of the 22nd of August, 1939, and uh, Hitler is trying to convince the Nazi bigwigs of his rationale for the attack on Poland. Uh, this is one day before the signature of the Hitler-Stalin or Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, and it's uh, nine days before Hitler attacks Poland uh, on September 1st, 1939. So Hitler says to the assembled people, and again, this is what I imagine Cheney saying in the secret councils of the Bush administration, I have called you together to give you a picture of the political situation in order that you may have some insight into the individual factors on which I have based my irrevocable decision to act and in order to strengthen your confidence. For us, it is easy to make this decision. We have nothing to lose. We can only gain. Our economic situation is such that we cannot hold out for more than a few years. Goering can confirm this. And I think this is a clear parallel to the U.S.-British banking system. Hitler goes on. We have no other choice. We must act. The political situation is favorable to us. All these fortunate circumstances will not prevail in two or three years. No one knows how long I shall live. Therefore, a showdown, which it would not be safe to put off for four or five years, had better take place right now. And then a, an, and another series of remarks from Hitler that I think are also typical for the current uh, regime here in the White House. I shall give a propagandist reason for starting the war, never mind whether it's plausible or not. The victor will not be asked afterward whether he told the truth. In starting and waging a war, 
It is not right that matters, but victory. And then he launches into a Nietzschean, or we would say today, neocon tirade. Close your hearts to pity. Act brutally. Eighty million people must obtain what is their right. The stronger man is right. Be harsh and remorseless. Be steeled against all signs of compassion. Whoever has pondered over this world order knows that its meaning lies in the success of the best by means of force. And, of course, what Hitler did then to deliver World War II was the Gleiwitz radio station incident, which was a radio station in German territory but near the Polish border. And they got some SS provocateurs to go into the radio station and pretend that they were Poles taking over the radio station and reading a raving declaration condemning Hitler, insulting Germany, and all the rest. But uh, Hitler had gotten Heydrich of the SS to go and get 15 or 20 uh, concentration camp victims, poison them, kill them, then transport the dead bodies to the uh, area of this radio station, shoot them up with machine guns, and leave them dressed in Polish uniforms as if it had been a Polish raid uh, on this radio station that had, uh, had casualties but then succeeded. And then this is what Goebbels cited in the German media as the reason for the war. Now, in effect, that's what we've got. We've got uh, the, the Cheney propaganda machine claiming that Iran is arming the uh, national resistance in Iraq with the new kinds of improvised explosive devices, the so-called explosively formed penetrators or EFPs, uh, and blaming all of the U.S. defeats in Iraq are automatically blamed now on Iran, and this is supposed to set up the, the pretext for for that attack. And then, of course, beyond that, uh, we've got this quote from Cheney, the statement of April 15th of this year, when he told uh, Face the Nation on CBS News that his main fear now is not terrorists coming in the form of hijackers armed with box cutters and airline tickets, but rather a nuclear explosion in a U.S. city, says Cheney. That's his main fear. And we know that we've had just this past week the Noble Resolve 07 exercise, the scenario of which was a radiological dirty bomb in the Portland, Oregon area. And these drills are going on constantly, and each one of them brings the threat that at a certain point, one or the other of these drills, and the scenario is generally some form of weapons of mass destruction, quite often radiological dirty bomb, that these things are going to... Uh, go live, that they're going to be flipped live, and that instead of a drill, it'll become the real thing. So we're in a, a world, of course, where Chertoff has a gut feeling there's going to be terrorism, where we've got a national intelligence estimate that says al-Qaeda wants to strike inside the United States. And I would simply say the danger of this financial crisis is that the prospect of a banking panic and a dollar panic drive the ruling class into a frenzy, make them go berserk, uh, hysterical in the most extreme form. And this is the sort of ruling class mentality where a flight forward into war seems like, for them, a relaxation of tension. And, of course, one other thing is, if you're going to have a depression, they're going to want to have an austerity program. They're going to say, cutting your living standard by two-thirds is not enough. We want to cut it by another 20, 30, 40 percent. And you're now getting to the point where the only way you can do that is under 
martial law, right? We've got people, and I'm very glad to see this, people are talking about a general strike. People have rediscovered that there's such a thing as a mass strike or general strike in a country, this one, where it seemed like that had been permanently removed from the lexicon of politics and, uh, and, uh, and, and political affairs. Um, so therefore, it's a very attractive idea to say, let's impose martial law, and we'll claim it's because of bin Laden, but in reality, we'll use it to implement the bailout for the banks and foreclosures for the millions and millions of, of hapless homeowners who are going to be thrown out on the streets, and let's make sure that there are no strikes anymore. Let's just, uh, let's just decree that there will be no more strikes and no labor, no collective bargaining, no nothing, because we've got to fight the global war on terrorism. I think that's the logic that infects the, the neocon faction at this point. What book were you uh, quoting when you were speaking about the Third Reich? That's uh, William Shirer. That's, a, I think, a very readable account, and I think it's, it's extremely useful for people to go back and look at this stuff because um, the comparison to Hitler and the Nazi regime that we have, unfortunately, we, it's unavoidable today, um, depends on knowing something about what the Nazi regime really looked like. And the idea that Hitler has to argue to a group of generals in particular who are not really that enthusiastic about attacking Poland. Um, and then he's got, to, he's got to pull this Gleibitz uh, stunt in order to, to manufacture a consensus. Uh, it indicates that Hitler's argument is that Germany faces financial and economic collapse, and we've got to attack Poland. Well, why attack Poland? It simply means look at the... 30 to 40 million slave laborers, look at the factories, look at the mines, look at the coal, the steel, the Silesian industrial belts, and all that. Look at what you add to your war economy by, for example, taking over Poland. Now, I'm sure there were economic uh, arguments uh, regarding Iran, regarding the Middle East, and then there's also, the, again, in this case, the attraction of martial law for certain ruling class circles where they say, well, that will allow us to conduct the bailout and the economic reorganization uh, in some way that we want. One aspect of it is, if we do go into hyperinflation, there, there may be a scenario for, for that, too. And that is this, um, uh, it, it's, it's something that has been, uh, I think, right-wing circles have paid more attention to it, but it is very real. This past week, we had a summit of Bush with uh, Calderon and with Harper, uh, up in Canada, so the North American uh, Three, and they're talking about uh, a whole series of measures of supranational economic integration, including a possible North American currency called the Amero. And as I say, it's, it's right-wing groups that have been most upset about this, but I think it is a very, very real danger. It may be a way of saying, in the eventuality that the dollar succumbs to hyperinflation and, and is basically destroyed that way, we have another fallback alternative for the world beyond hyperinflation, because the fact that hyperinflation is sort of in the cards for this system has not been a, a secret for the last 10 or 15 or 20 years even. So um, they may have another super austerity currency uh, for the time beyond the horizon of hyperinflation that we see now. So I think it makes it all the more important for people, people to mobilize. Webster, in the book you were quoting from, and you were speaking of Hitler, uh, how accurate is that? 
Oh, I think it's quite accurate. There is one of the people who's taking part. This is uh, Colonel General Halder, H-A-L-D-E-R. And this is an interesting person. He's a, obviously, he's a, a general working for Hitler. So, However, he's really a monarchist, and he's a, a, a peripheral part of the plot to kill Hitler on the 20th of July, 1944, the von Stauffenberg uh, attempt to blow up Hitler in, in East Prussia. And Halder had learned a very, what was even by that time, a little-used system of stenography. In other words, he could, he could take notes very rapidly because he was a steno. He had a shorthand that he knew, and he took lots and lots of notes. So there's this big volume of books called The Halder Diaries. And I think most of what I've just read you is uh, a stenographic record from Halder, perhaps supplemented by some other memoirs by uh, William L. Shirer, and the book is called The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich, and I would recommend this. It's a very, very good uh, introduction to the topic, and, and very readable, and it is political, military, economic history, real history of, of high-level politics, and uh, obviously it preserves the horror of these events, but it also shows you their complexities, and just the idea that Hitler would argue economic reasons I think is is indicative of what's going on inside the White House and the old executive office building today. I'm speaking with author and economic historian Webster Tarpley. Today's show, Beyond Collapse to Disintegration, How to Stop the Depression. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Well, in terms of a desperate flight forward because of the economic situation, a flight forward into more war. Of course, many people have pointed out that uh, the United States military is certainly capable of bombing Iran, but that there's no way they could invade Iran because they don't have the power. Yes, I would certainly agree with that. I think that the, the notion of attacking Iran is absolute folly, it is uh, an incalculable uh, risk. It is really it, it gets close to be an act of national suicide for the United States because it then opens up uh, this perspective of a belt of war from Iraq, well, even from Lebanon, Jordan, Iraq, Iran, Afghanistan, and Pakistan because we've got a very active attempt to overthrow President Musharraf, this being conducted by the United States, We've got an, an, an attempt to overthrow Maliki, the current puppet prime minister of Iraq. The neocons are not happy with Maliki. They want to get Maliki out and bring back Alawi, the notorious CIA agent, and make Alawi the head of the Iraqi government with an attempt then to turn Iraq into some part of a, of a war coalition against uh, Iran uh, and to try to recruit Egypt and Saudi Arabia and even Syria and God knows who else, even Turkey probably under pressure to join in such a thing, although I doubt any of these countries will do it, uh, and Pakistan. I think the reason that Musharraf is being overthrown is simply because Cheney went to him in February and said, we want you to join in attacking Iran to box them in, to give them a second front, and Musharraf clearly said no. Uh, so therefore he's now in the process of being overthrown, although he may, he may be able to uh, to resist. So the, the neocon theory is that the only thing that keeps the 
Iranian government the way it is, the government of the mullahs, in effect, and it is that to some degree, uh, is the Quds Force, which is an elite of an elite. It's the Quds Force is an elite force of the Pasteran Revolutionary Guard, which is not the same as the Iranian army. So the neocons have convinced themselves that if they can simply annihilate the Quds Force, then the Pasteran will collapse and the entire Iranian regime will collapse and there will be then a color revolution on the model of the Orange Revolution in Kiev and the Rose Revolution in Georgia and what they did in Serbia back in 2000. So they, they're convinced that they can, they can uh, essentially do to, these, uh, do, do to Ahmadinejad what they did to Marcos and what they did to other uh, of their puppets at, at various points uh, in, in history. And I think this is absolutely fantastic. In other words, this is now, the neocon judgment is not just warped, it's, it's a hallucination. It's, uh, it's the LSD of political analysis, pretty much. But this is, what they, this is what they argue. And, of course, a lot of it has to do with the fact that Libby has been convicted. He, I guess he won't serve, but he's been convicted Lord Conrad Black has been convicted. This is a really big thing. Lord Conrad Black was the main money bags of the American Enterprise Institute, where we find Lynn Cheney, we find Michael Ledeen, we find David Frum, we find uh, any number of neocon bigwigs. And the supposition is that the money that Lord Conrad Black stole from the Hollinger Corporation found itself then found its way into the American Enterprise Institute and then into the pockets of Lynn Cheney and therefore into Dick Cheney's allowance. So uh, they're also afraid that uh, you know, other, other neocons may, may be indicted because there's a tremendous hatred, hatred and, and resentment against them. And uh, I think, generally speaking, the, the mood among the neocons is Goethe Demerunk, the twilight of the gods. In other words, that the, the neocon gods are facing an apocalyptic perspective and actually their tendency and their desire is to drag everybody else into it so uh i think it means that one of the one of the imperatives for human survival is simply to drive the neocons out of public life they should not be pundits they shouldn't be columnists they shouldn't be in the white house they shouldn't be near the congress the problem, of course, is that you've got a large neocon faction in the Democratic Party. And it's not just Lieberman. Mrs. Clinton, to my way of thinking, fulfills every prerequisite of being a neocon in the sense that she believes in war, wants to continue the war in Iraq, uh, and she's just made comments to the effect that if there's a, if there's a terrorist act in the U.S., that's going to help the Republicans unless she is there to take control of the situation. So what she's saying is, I can ride a terrorist act into power better than a Republican neocon right now. So not very reassuring. What was the Economic Bill of Rights of 1944 that Roosevelt proposed? Well, thank you for reminding me of that. This grows out of the Atlantic Charter. Remember that in, in the summer of 1941, in August, Churchill and Roosevelt met on a warship uh, on the coast of Newfoundland, and they issued the Atlantic Charter. And the Atlantic Charter is essentially the, the war aims of what's shortly going to be the Allied coalition in, in World War II. Uh, and it says, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom from fear, freedom from want. 
naturally, Churchill did not respect this. People in India came forward and said, how about us? And he said, oh, no, not you. Nobody in the British Empire gets this, only in the North Atlantic zone, therefore the Atlantic Charter. But uh, Roosevelt took this seriously, and he came back and talked about it in, in uh, a couple of um, important speeches. And among these, the most important is the State of the Union, January 1944, where he says what we've got to do now is to plan for a raising of the U.S. standard of living. And right now we have, as he had said, one-third of a country ill-fed, ill-clothed, ill-housed, and insecure. And that was actually, that was really pre-war, but a, a large fraction was, uh, was economically depressed. So what Roosevelt proposed was an eight-point uh, economic bill of rights which I think, I think it's pretty clear he wanted this incorporated into the Constitution as a second Bill of Rights. And if this had been done, we would not be in the current situation, and this uh, noxious growth of monetarism uh, would never have occurred. So let, let me just read what he, what he proposes. He says, in effect, you have a, a right to the following. The right to a useful and remunerative job in the industries or shops or farms or mines of the nation. You have a right to earn enough to provide adequate food and clothing and recreation. Every farmer has the right to raise and sell products at a return which will allow him and his family a decent living. There is a right for every businessman, large or small, to trade in an atmosphere of freedom from unfair competition and domination by monopolies at home and abroad. That would be no free trade, no NAFTA, no GATT, no CAFTA, and so forth. The right of every family to a decent home. The right to adequate medical care and the opportunity to achieve and enjoy good health. The right to adequate protection from the economic fears of old age, sickness, accident, and unemployment. The right to a good education. And of course, these would be historically determined. Today, that would have to mean the right to a four-year college education in some useful branch. And he says, all of these rights spell security. After this war is won, we must be prepared to move forward in the implementation of these rights to new goals of human happiness and well-being. And unfortunately, after Roosevelt's death, we get the puppet Harry Truman and uh, Harry Truman then begins to, uh, to, to, to try to destroy the labor movement, essentially the strike wave of 1946. Truman does his very best to destroy the New Deal coalition. And then in 1946, we get the Taft-Hartley union-busting law, which allows the right-to-work states of the, of the South to, uh, to lead the way in the race to the bottom. And all of this has remained a dead letter. But I would regard the eight points of the FDR Economic Bill of Rights of 1945 as the centerpiece of the unfinished business of this country. Now, it's of course true that these do not address the question of how all this wealth is going to be produced. And we, we would have to remind ourselves that there's no way that simply by distributing what exists you could get to this. You'd have to produce new wealth, produce new infrastructure, and reindustrialize the United States. But I think these as goals are absolutely imperative, and from a political point of view, they ought to be at, at the center of any, any progressive political campaign, because we've got, we've got people who want to 
crucify humanity on the cross of the market. And we've got other people who have fallen into pessimism, and they seem to think that the only thing to do is have a carbon tax or a carbon tax uh, cap-and-trade system or something like that. And I would say, no, that those are not the uh, the right ways. My, my um, slogan is we have to say no to monetarism, no to Malthusianism, and no to mexophobia, and instead embrace uh, the the economic method really of of the New Deal, and uh, it seems to me this is this is the direction that we ought to take today. Um, beyond this, the Federal Reserve itself is obviously an illegal, unconstitutional institution. It it really grows out of the capitulation of Grover Cleveland to uh, to J P Morgan in the in the famous dollar crisis of 1895, when the the British and Morgan organized a run on the U S gold stocks, and then they agreed to stop it if Cleveland would turn over essentially the U.S. public debt and public finance to Morgan and his backers in London, uh, and that was 1895. And then less than 20 years later, under Woodrow Wilson, we have this Federal Reserve Act, which puts the, um, the control of the money supply and the interest rates into the hands of cliques of bankers. Uh, there was a time under Roosevelt from 1933 until uh, the late 40s, even under Truman, when there was a de facto nationalization of the Federal Reserve. In other words, Roosevelt's power was great enough so that he would call the head of the Federal Reserve and he'd say, the money supply for next, next month is going to be this, and we're going to have a Treasury bill auction, and you're going to buy it at this rate. Uh, that was so successful that the United States went through World War II with a 2% interest rate on a five-year Treasury bill. Uh, it was called a low-yield government securities standard, and it uh, it was quite effective. Um, and it was at extremely low interest rates. And the Treasury bills were going for less than half a percent for a 30 or 60 60 day Treasury bill. All this is all in my my book, uh, Surviving the Cataclysm. But then in uh, 1952, the Federal Reserve rebelled and said that they would no longer respect uh, orders coming from the White House. And this was, of course, terrible mistake by Roosevelt not to have nationalized the Federal Reserve when he could have done it, but he didn't do it. And that's a t- terrible limitation. We're all paying the price. And as, uh, as was noted at the time, after the Federal Reserve got itself free again from White House control, it sent interest rates into orbit. And the, the current interest rates, even though they seem a little bit lower than what we had 20 years ago, they're still extremely high. So the idea would be nationalize the Federal Reserve, you make it into a Bureau of the Treasury, and at that point the size of the money supply and the prevailing rates of interest become the subject of a public law that the the House has to pass, the Senate has to pass, the President has to sign, and that sets economic policy, not cliques of bankers, because these are not technical matters. These are highly political issues, and the bankers have uh, have uh, essentially skewed the playing field for their own narrow interest, and we've now got this deindustrialized country with a, a low-wage economy and a collapsed standard of living, and that's got to change. And finally, we're going to need world monetary reform. Um, it's been uh, 36 years since August 15, 1971, which was, the, I think, the greatest turning point in the lives of people uh, who can remember this. I think more than any other even more than 9-11, more than anything that can be mentioned. Uh, the destruction of the Bretton Woods system, the end of the fixed parity system decreed by Nixon, 
on August 15, 1971. So what we've got to do is um, essentially begin to think about fixed parities among currencies. And, of course, in order to do that, uh, you'd have to create demand for dollars. In other words, the U.S. would have to start producing something that somebody wants to buy. And this could be, well, a whole series of things, but I think we'd have to address that along the way. Webster Tarpley, thank you very much. Thank you very much again. Something happening, yeah. I've been speaking with Webster Tarpley. Today's show has been Beyond Collapse to Disintegration, How to Stop the Depression. Webster Tarpley is an author, economic historian, investigative journalist, and lecturer. He has just written a new article, Helicopter Ben Unleashes Dollar Hyperinflation. He is author of 9-11 Synthetic Terror, Made in the USA, Against Oligarchy, a collection of essays and speeches from the years 1970 to 1996, and co-author of George Bush, The Unauthorized Biography. He is also author of Surviving the Cataclysm, A Study of the World Financial Crisis, Your Guide Through the Greatest Financial Crisis in Human History. Surviving the Cataclysm was published in 1999 and was followed immediately by the dot-com bubble and then by the housing bubble. Surviving the Cataclysm is available on disc, soon to be published in book form, and available at www.tarpley.net. That's www.tarpley.net. Email him at tarpley at tarpley.net. Guns and Butter is produced, edited, and mixed by Bonnie Faulkner and Yaro Mako. Our engineer is Bonnie Bone. To leave comments or order copies of the show, call 510-848-6767, extension 628. Email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.net or visit our website at www.gunsandbutter.net. Which is the evolution of the mind If you seek, then you shall find That we all